Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson, your gracious host, uh, coming at you once again. If you guys are tuning in for the first time, this show covers all things innovation, ideas, smart people doing smart things. And today, the buck does not stop. Say hello, Nilifer Blink Merchant. Hi, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to get me to say my old middle name. Well, your, wait, your old middle name or your? It, it's not, I don't have a middle name anymore. What happened? Well, how do you not have a middle name? Well, so in India, when you're when you are you know titled, your middle name and your last name is your father's first name and middle name, and I didn't really like that. And so at some point, when I'd given away my last name from marriage number one. Uh, previous administration, as I like to refer to it. Previous <laughs> under new management. And then when I was exactly then when I was kind of reclaiming my name, I was like, oh, this middle thing doesn't really apply anymore, so I just got rid of it. You should. You could have like a whole sentence paragraph full of full of names if you want it. Wouldn't that be fun though? That would be fun. Nilifer Beyonce Merchant. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't just make up names. Just, <laughs> I mean, you could. This is kind of what this conversation will be about: mm-hmm. just making stuff up. Mm-hmm. Um, ideas. <laughs> so, if you don't mind, uh, give us the 101 on who Nilifer blah, 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 Merchant is. We're just going to laugh our way through this talk. We might, we might, we might not. You might go, like, you know what, you're not funny at all. So. <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> but you're making me laugh. Uh, 101 on Nilifer Merchant. So, recovering business executive. I say recovering business executive because I worked at companies like Apple and Autodesk and Go Live and advised a whole bunch of high tech companies. I'm recovering because I no longer do that for my full time work. And thank the Lord. And now I've written <laughs> uh, my third book, uh, which is called The Power of Onlyness. Ah. Well, thank the Lord, actually, because you did work in those environments that you could now transition to become a storyteller, an inspiring storyteller of sorts. Um, when did you? recognize the need or the want to transition, right? When did you recognize that you had this gift for storytelling versus the skill that you had in the in the corporate world? Well, I didn't leave uh, the corporate world because I believed I was going to go do storytelling. I actually, if uh, you, you go back to any of the friends I talked to in that window of time, uh, what they will say to you is that I said my career was over. Keep going. And, uh, and they <laughs> said things like, well, it was a good run. And uh, that's it. And of course, uh, everyone laughs now because I've since been named the number one management thinker in the world who would shape the future of management. Uh, I've gotten you know accolades since then, and I and I find it all humorous. But when I left the the business world, I was really leaving it with this uh, failure. I was uh, unable to transition the leadership of my team to carry on without me, and my own personal family situation required me to focus elsewhere. And I just had to pick. And at that moment, I was like, well, if you're forcing me to pick, I have to pick this longer term relationship that I'm responsible for until yeah. he's out in the world. So uh, I made this personal decision, which actually felt like, you know, like I had failed. Yeah. Because I always thought if you're successful, you get to have it all. You get to be career guru, business, whatever, right, and all that stuff. And and then when, you know, push came to shove, I had to make a choice. Did it take you stepping outside of it to see the world you see it now? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? If I kept working in corporate America, I would keep trying to fix a system from inside. And I probably wouldn't have been the one to notice that, by the way, the way we're doing innovation today has nothing to do with an organization-centric model. You don't need to be a part of a firm. You don't need to have the capital associated with a firm. You can do and drive big change more independently through this distributed network. So I don't think I would have spotted it, Mm. this idea that I've been working on for the last seven years, if I was still trying to figure out how to hold up, you know, sort of fix the fortress from the inside. Even though it's decaying and you can right. see it falling down, but you're like, no, no, I'm in the fortress. I gotta keep it going. But it's because it's a weird catch twenty two, right? Like you know, even some of the work I do in the agency world, it's like, oh, the agency model is broken, but you also are you you work in it, so you can, you can see the problem. You just can't necessarily fix it. Bandwidth, you know, priorities, what you know, the priority of the moment. Um, has the work that you've done outside of corporate America, have you seen it like actually be ad- adopted and, and utilized in the, the old world? <laughs> yeah, you know, so, so back when I was at Apple, uh, I was responsible for this server channel program 
at the time I had been um, growing it from $2 million, which is when I got handed that business responsibility. It was about $180 million in about 18 months. And Steve Jobs is returning to Apple. And I get asked on behalf of my business unit team to be the one to present, like, here's our growth and our success and effectively why we deserve to still be around, right, after right. Jobs is returned from the exodus. And I'm, I'm standing up in front of him. And behind me, the slide says something like channel management, you know, my name and the channel management. And this is his set of words to me, his very first set of words. Steve Jobs walks in, by the way, wearing a really trashy T-shirt and flip-flops. <laughs> and, um, and I'm like wearing like a navy blue suit with like a little bow collar because I'm trying to act so professional. And nice. Grown up and You're stuff. like Mary Poppins. Yeah, totally. Indian Mary Poppins. <laughs> How are you supposed to behave in an Ann Taylor suit? And um, so he walks in, puts his feet on the table looks at the slide behind me, doesn't actually look me in the eye and says, channel, who needs the fucking channel? <laughs> and, uh, and I remember really looking over at my colleagues right then and thinking, um, do I stop now? Or do I have to kind of finish the presentation, right? Because right. it was so clear, like he wasn't going to listen to a word I was about to say. And uh, so I, I, they kind of look at me and shrug their shoulders, you know, and, and so like, <laughs> they all slowly backed away from you. Like, right. But I mean, like, these are all much more experienced people. And I'm thinking maybe they have a clue as to what the right response is. They kind of shrug their shoulders at me. And I'm like, OK, I will just keep going and pretend that moment didn't happen. But here's the thing. Jobs was looking at the same data that I was looking at, which was that consumers wanted a closer relationship with the, you know, like the brand, right? They didn't want an intermediary. They didn't want to have to buy through a channel. They wanted somebody who knew the product and really intimately could create an experience. I was looking at that same data. Now remember, my title behind me said channel management. And I was figuring out how to make the channel better. Mm. So here I was inside the industry, looking at all the data that said the future's changing and going, no, 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 no. Like that will, that will cause us to disrupt our current revenue. So my instinct was, to duct tape and preserve and hold on. Right. And when he was doing that moment of fuck the channel, right, using his language, he was basically saying, listen, if we don't make the leap to the future, we never get there. Right. And so I expected, uh, by the way, I kind of went back to my desk, wrote back an email to some guy who just offered me a job as VP at um, a, a startup called GoLive, which was the web authoring software that became really well known. And he said, do you want to come help build a startup? And I wrote back, you know, before the meeting, I was like, no, I'm not really interested. After the meeting, I was like, yes, I was very <laughs> much. that time I said no? <laughs> I would very much like to talk to you about that opportunity. And, uh, and I took off because I was thinking, well, the first thing he's going to do is shut down the work that we had done. So a couple months later, I run into the guy who's taken over my job. And I'm like, hey, Patty, what's going on? You know, how's it going? And, you know, are you looking for work kind of thing? And he goes, no, no, no. We're executing exactly on your business plan. Here's how we're doing against the metrics you set up. And he basically gives me like a status update. And I'm looking at him like, what is wrong with this picture? And and in retrospect, so years later now, yeah. going back to the question you you asked, you have to figure out how to kind of hold today strong, but not invest any more in it. Right. Then and all your new energy has to go into building the future. And holding those two things in tension is the gift that all of us have to do, right? The world mm. as it exists today, we know we have to manage it in order to preserve today's revenue. But if we're going to make all the progress we actually need to make for all those ideas that need to be incubated so that we get to the future, you have to kind of figure out how to contain it enough so that all your creative energy goes towards the future. Right. And and I, I didn't understand it back then in that Apple experience or even when I was leaving Rubicon and, and the enterprise world. But now I see it so clearly. It's how do you both preserve today and invent the future? And it's not one or the other. How did that feel in the moment, right? Because in the moment, the seeing the future and holding on to the present is kind of annoying, <laughs> to, to say the least, you know, um, especially when you need to rally a lot of stakeholders around that vision of the future. Um, but I would imagine that a, it takes some grit. It takes a, a visionary like a Steve Jobs and, and there are many Steve Jobs is in the world. But, you know, what did it feel like in the moment? Just because attention doesn't feel good, I would imagine. Right. And how did you handle it? So the, the one thing I would I would say is if we well, most of us are trained to look for change as if it's a negative, And we kind of want to figure out how to mitigate change. And I've actually come to view change as the opposite, which is it's the only thing we can actually anticipate. And so at some point, the way I look at it is, 
It's how much do I learn? How fast do I learn? How do I ask for help, etc. So I just view it as it's just managing the rate of change. So change is going to happen. The only thing we get to manage is how well do we adapt and respond in reaction to it. And the way I, I kind of picture it in my own geeky little head is uh, <laughs> when I was taking uh, when I was taking calculus classes. Uh, I never understood calculus. Like the first from day one, I was looking at the teacher like I have no idea. I understood algebra. And I understood anything that like could relate back to money. No, I had the exact same experience. Okay. I did pretty good in math. And then when calculus came up, I like, I remember the teacher called on me once and I was, I was just, I went, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about yeah, Because it's so theoretical, but the, but the, and I wish they would explain it this way. So this is how I finally understood calculus and, and how I apply it to my geeky little way of looking at the world, which is calculus is me- measuring sort of the slope of the line. Mm-hmm. But if you think of the slope as a line as the rate of change, Calculus is measuring the rate of change. And if you just understand, if you make the slope of the line go up and to the right higher, by the way, you're going to get richer. If you manage the slope of the line goes slower, you're going to end up having entropy. And so all you're trying to manage for your own life is how do I manage the rate of change? So rate of change is how far up can I go? How far high can I go? And to manage that, you manage your rate of learning. How fast can I learn? How much help can I get? Who else can join me in picking up that lever of change, right? So now mm-hmm. you see where I'm going with yeah. it. You're managing the slope of the line. And if you just understand your whole work is to manage the slope of the line, then you're just figuring out how to do that better and better. Um, there you go, calculus. Boom, <laughs> we just learned calculus. You should be a math professor. <laughs> um, only this, make your wild ideas mighty enough to dent the world. Um, I read some excerpts from the book. I'm also curious as to how the design of the cover came together. It's an interesting look and feel. I'm like, I'm telling, and I'm pretty good at deciphering things, but I was like, this is a good puzzle. Yeah. So every author has a story of where the publisher sends them a cover and they look at it and they're like, this is so not what I imagined my cover to be. And and they're trying really hard not to offend the lovely people that they're trying to work with at the publisher and not go like, no. But they're also like, yeah, no. (laughs) And and they sent me a right justified uh, corporate font that I swear to God, a five-year-old could have done in about a minute. And I was just like, and I had a little earth, dent the world. Uh, They had a little earth as the period around world. Oh, and I was like, okay, quite literal. <laughs> yes. So, um, so I said, okay, so um, it's it's the idea onlyness, right? That each of us has a spot in the world only you stand. So if each of us has that, it has to have some hand sense, some mm-hmm. sense of like graffiti almost, right? And uh, uh, penmanship that's original to a person. And I said that's imperative. And then. Uh, I, I said, that's a minimum. Like, I will not accept any other covers that don't have that as a design. And then I came back and I said, and it has to be some conceptual way of looking at inclusivity. Because the book's thesis is that 61% of us abandon our ideas, not because we want to, but because we have to, because society forces us to conform. And then I'm showing that 61% how to go do it anyway and finding a new pathway in. So I was like, so what's that group of people who are typically told they're too weird, they're too wild, they're too much, they're too shrill. You know, you can go by group and kind of think about what groups yeah, get yeah. told different things. And I was like, what's that? And uh, and so I was thinking like rainbows and sunrises and stuff like that, right? Like what are the multicolored mm-hmm. ways? So that's why there's uh, that actual color palette is a sunrise. And the only this arrow points to power deliberately? The only or, or am I am I going too literal? No, that's exactly what it is. So <laughs> onlyness is a bottoms bottoms up way mm-hmm. for us to actually change power. So Not drinking bottoms up. <laughs> well, maybe that's <laughs> that leads to power. <laughs> but it's it's right. It's local. It's organic. It's the way in which people connected together can make things happen, even when they don't have traditional power, even when they don't have traditional status. Um. So yeah. You read the cover exactly like I would have. Good. We're see where we are like. <laughs> uh, so when I think about that concept, right? There's a lot of focus in the book on the balance of the individual and the us, right? And we all and I like this concept of we don't fit in, right? And I would love for you to just kind of like 
dive into that concept a little bit and just like there's a loneliness there's could be an l right next to the o um that goes along with kind of like recognizing who you are as a creative individual inside of an ecosystem yeah so loneliness uh, is really uh, i should back up and just share when i originally coined the term i was trying to name an economic shift that was going on that ideas are what fuels our modern economy that it wasn't about hierarchies, it wasn't about capital. And I was just watching where innovation was coming from and saying, okay, so current words that we use to, um, to fuel that are things like we say talent. Someone who's talented drives our innovation. I don't know about you, but my life experience has been when someone says, well, that person's not talented enough. What they're typically doing is using the word talent to screen people out. So what they mean by it is you don't have the right credentials. You don't have the right degrees. You don't have the right brands behind you. And in truth, uh, I was trying to say, well, if ideas can come from anywhere, everywhere, then what is that thing that's not about screening people out, but screening people in and trying to find a way to characterize that? So that's why I came up with only because I was saying 7.5 billion of us on Earth each have the ability and capacity to create value. The fact that we don't is society's biggest problem and its biggest opportunity. And that in that onlyness, mm. you can actually have different onlys connected together and be able to create value. So that's where the term came from. And then getting back to your, um, uh, sorry. No, uh, the, uh, the. Oh, and how does fitting yes. in work, right? So onlys have always, uh, if you're the only one, the research says that if you're less than 15% of a group, you will fit in and conform to that group. So if you're the first one, the only who's kind of shattered some ceiling and has shown up in some room, but that room looks dramatically different than you, mm-hmm. no matter how strong and lovely a person you are and really believing in your ideas, you will quiet it down. You will tailor it a little bit you, because psychology just basically says, if you have to pick in this ascension of psychological needs, mm-hmm. bottom stuff is like food and shelter. Very top is your ideas. In the middle is this thing called belonging. Right. So research says if you're less than 15% of a group, you will, and you have to choose between your ideas at the top or belonging in the middle, belonging wins every time. This is true because I, 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 not to cut you off, but I think about that construct if I do a lot of pitching, you know, in my, yeah, in my life. And so, you know, uh, most times I try to avoid reflecting that other person's energy, especially if their energy is low. Right. And, and I think the same sort of thing happens. I find myself bringing my, you know, my, my intensity level down a little bit. You know, so we'll do. But like I want there to be excitement about whatever it is we're discussing. Right. I want there to be excitement about the idea or the opportunity or whatever the thing is. Um, and so I can see the imbalance there with with like walking into that room and being the only. And so onlys have almost always been lonely. And so that's why onlyness is a categorical shift, right? It's saying if you can now find the other people who can care about the same thing as you, which, by the way, was only within the last 15 to 20 years, right? So think about how many people, like if you were uh, gay and in the Midwest, right, and you you could not find other people who had that, you would feel like a pretty odd duck yeah. and, and feel like there's no one else in the world as you. Or if you had, I don't know, Parkinson's disease or uh, something that really made you feel disabled and the community around you viewed you as broken instead of right. simply having a disease, right? Or if you were gay in the Midwest and you have Parkinson's <laughs> disease, then... It doesn't matter where you go. There you go. <laughs> but now you can find whatever it is, right? And, and I, I chose those two, but I'm literally saying like whatever it is. Sure. What are those things that you care about? Now you can find those other people. I, a friend of mine um, happens to be a musician in D.C. and in the hip hop field and runs a magazine around it. And he says, you know, 10 years ago, he could never have imagined running an enterprise that was celebrating hip hop and figuring out how to bring different artists together because it was so hard to find them all. Mm-hmm. And now he can organize them, talk to them, motivate. You know, like he can he can mobilize this. And this is what the Internet's really enable it's the best of us to no longer have to feel like we're onlys and that's what's giving us the strength of our own conviction of our own ideas we no longer have to make that tough choice that's great um if i had to translate an onlyness back into mm-hmm. a billion dollar corporate structure because then you have like your you know what some people call entrepreneurs uh, a person or a team of individuals who are responsible for or just happen to see the world a different way 
And they are a small percentage in this sort of like machine, really, is, is what it is. Um, how does this trans? I get it from like the individual, kind of like, oh, I'm gonna go make my thing. Uh, but if it's me and I need to now I have to rally support, I have to do all I have to do all the extra work on top of being, you know, my only. It is the work, right? So let me tell a story because this kind of brings it home. In fact, uh, the book is obviously uh, 20 unbelievable stories. So I'll yes. just pick on one of those. Um, but I actually researched 300 in order to find the 20 that I that I featured in the book. Um, uh, so Franklin Leonard was one of the stories that I wrote about in the book. And since we're sitting in L.A. and doing this interview here, uh, I'll share his story. So Franklin's relatively young, um, had uh, left McKinsey done a binge watching uh, weekend where he basically watched Netflix for an entire weekend and thought, you know, the only thing I've ever really loved is movies. And I'm going to go out to Hollywood. And he shows up basically like ready to, you know, bring people coffee and gets this relatively low level job. And after a year, he realizes most of the scripts he sees are scripts that are prescriptive and uh, rote and uh, tired. And he's not seeing the stories that he imagines are possible stories that reflect him, right? The right. stories reflect the things he cares about. And so he goes through his entire Rolodex, uh, finds every person he's connected with in the last year and sends this email from an alias and says, I'm interested in finding better scripts. I think you are too. So just answer back. What are scripts you've seen in the last year that haven't been put into production that you love? And, uh, and if you send it back, I will send you back a, you know, using his McKinsey skills, uh, a, a master spreadsheet, and it will help you too in finding the scripts that you want. So he gets all his data, turns it all out. And uh, prints five scripts out and takes off on vacation. This is back in the days when we actually used to all take vacations and, and log <laughs> off. And, uh, but he comes back and he says he gets, um, because remember, this is an alias mm -hmm. uh, that he's used. And he gets back this email that he sent out with this tabulated thing back to him hundreds of times. Like, you should really take a look at this thing that was called the blacklist. And uh, Franklin says... He was only going to do that one time because he was really just trying to solve this one problem. Sure. He spotted something that only he saw. He thought, you know, it's just a one-time problem. And then he realized, actually, this is a really interesting question. Like, at one point, some, some uh, like, big hotshot in Hollywood pitches him, Franklin, and says, by the way, I have it on good authority that this movie, the script that you're looking at, is going to be on the blacklist next year. And Franklin laughs because he's like, uh, you know, the guy doesn't know it's him, right? That he's basically oh, lying fine. to the guy. <laughs> and, uh, but he starts doing this and over year over year, all these scripts that were destined for the dustbin got pulled back out and had a chance. And here's what Franklin did that even as he and I were decoding it, um, he, he was like, well, I think we did this thing right. And I'm like, I don't think that was it. And I asked him to look at it differently when I sent him back, you know, the draft of what I wrote for him. And uh, I said, what I think you did is you asked a brand new question. Mm. By the way, a question the entire industry really believed in, right. but no one was acting on. And his ability to act on it mobilized an entire tribe of people. And did you catch the question? Yes. What do you love? Love. Yes. What do you love? So Hollywood had trained itself to do things by what makes money. Mm-hmm. But he was basically asking the original question, right? So here's a person who is... In all uh, aspects, uh, powerless, it doesn't have a highfalutin job, doesn't have a high Rolodex network yet, all those things, and is basically willing to challenge conventional thinking. Because, by the way, all conventional thinking is less about thinking than about convention, right? right? And he's willing to do that. And in doing that, he changes an entire industry. So think about how each of us, when we notice something that only we notice, we usually go... Well, we do a couple of different things. One is no one wants to hear it, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes, sometimes we just dismiss it because we're like, yeah, doesn't even have a chance. Or somebody else might have thought about it already, so it must not that be that good. I mean, if, you know, somebody else smarter than me must have thought about it, so I must not have such an original idea. Or it's so inconsequential. I mean, how big could that thing be, yeah. right? And so, but here's the thing. That question at first seems really inconsequential. What he does, sending out an email in the middle of like 8 p.m. at night on Sunset Boulevard, right? Sending out a note to 89 people, saying, can you just help me identify better scripts? But he acts on it despite having any kind of sense that the future will change. How many of us, if we acted on the questions that really move us, right. could change our entire industry? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. It's Because as you were talking, I actually wrote down simplicity, right? It's those simple things. We were talking about hip-hop earlier. And uh, Jay-Z once said, you know, he didn't consider what he had a gift because it came easy to him. 
Right. And I think it's those simple moments that we often just overlook. It might not even We're taking for granted that which only we see. Right. No, really think about that. It's like the light bulb above our head. When we walk into the room, the whole room is that color. So you know what we think? Well, the world is that color. Mm-hmm. And what we don't realize is when we walk out of the room, that room changes. Right. And because what we bring distinctly to it is missing. It's like everywhere you go, the common denominator is you. Right. Right. But um, how do you, I think there's, there's two sides of that, right? Like I probably get a simple question, I don't know, a thousand times a day. Like, oh, why did you? How come you never do that? I can't go and, you know, maybe I don't have the time, the bandwidth, the energy, the foresight to say, oh, that could be a huge business opportunity, right? How do you recognize the value of that simple question? And that's one thing I liked about all the stories that were in the book is just like, they seem relatively simple. And it's like, this person did this, did that, and then next, it's, I don't want to oversimplify, but the next thing you know, it's, it's become an empire or it's become you know, a huge success in some way. But how do you, you know, recognize that, that nugget as a thing you should keep going with? Well, so it's what is it that gives meaning to what it is you do? So we can care about you know, 20 things and choose to act on one of them. But like, uh, it's interesting, you know, I wrote this book of onlyness and my husband will say, it's the book you've been trying to write since the first one, because what you've been trying to say is everyone can innovate. You've been trying to do that in your whole career and trying to figure out how to get the admin at the table to actually know that they can contribute as much as the CEO and get the CEO to shut up long enough to actually listen (laughs) to the admin, right? Like that's what you've been doing. And so he says, this is the book that actually fulfills on that promise because that's the question you've been chasing all your life. How do you actually have anyone and everyone count despite their status? And it takes my husband kind of pointing it out to me, right? Because I mean, he just sort of has witnessed me for this long 18 years now. Uh, And I, but I would not have articulated it that way. It's just so, obvious though when someone else says it back so the thing is what is it that we so care about that's our through line through all the things that we're working on right and it's quite often one or two things right that our friends can often say you know by the way chris yeah the thing you're always passionate about always lit up about is x Mm -hmm. and then you can go yeah that's the through line okay how do i do that more so it's a deeper meaning Behind all those special projects and things. I think think you also touched on just this point of like seeking counsel. There are people around you who know you or see you different than you might see yourself. Who see you. Right. Who see you. Exactly. And so, so, you know, case in point, my best friend got married uh, last Friday, known him for 20 plus years. And we were on the phone brainstorming. He was like, you know what? You always do it. And I was like. Always do I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I do. But it. That and I think if you're, you know, for the audience, right? If you're looking for what's that simple, simple thing that's scratching at you that you should be going after, it's the question. It's the question you kind of come back to on a regular basis, right? So it could be just that you're you're pissed off at that thing. So I don't want to say it's like super positive, (laughs) right? Um, In the in the case of Kimberly Bryant, which was one of the other stories, uh, Kimberly was uh, an engineer. When she got introduced to her, uh, you know, her fellow colleagues, she was so excited about joining this team at Dupont. And her boss introduced her, you know, walks her into the room and says, with Kimberly Bryant, and I meant, we got a twofer. That was his line. And Kimberly Bryant happens That's to be a black woman in tech. <laughs> Two different firsts. Two different firsts. Um, <laughs> but with Kimberly and Bryant, we got a twofer. And what he was pointing out was Kimberly's otherness, not her onlyness, not what she cared about, not her passions, not what she wanted to come here to do, mm-hmm. but all the ways in which Kim was different. And fast forward 15 years, she sees her daughter getting the exact same treatment at you know Stanford Coding Camp, and basically getting told, even though she's a really good gamer, she's getting Kai's getting treated like you know she's a novice. Right. And she's like, oh my gosh, you can be the first at everything and think you've broken the model, but in truth, the model doesn't change, right? The model, if you only have a bunch of onlys, it doesn't change. Right. And uh, and so she sits there and goes, it's never going to change unless someone changes it. And so at first, she just starts with gathering Kai and some of her friends around a kitchen table and designs some curriculum and borrows some old computers and stuff, right? And just like thinks about it as the thing she's doing on Saturday morning. And at one point, um, she's, it, the thing has grown and like other moms have come to her and said, hey, can I borrow that curriculum? 
can I start a chapter over here? Can I learn what you're doing here? Because they're seeing, oh my gosh, if we could train our girls to code, it could change an economic opportunity for a whole group of people, right? So people are seeing what, what the potential is and they're pulling her idea into the future. And Kim wonders what to name this thing. So she turns to an entrepreneur and says, hey, I'm really struggling with what to name this thing. And the woman says, so you're trying to teach black girls to code, right? Why not call it that? And you can hear the 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 mental um, gymnastics that's going through Kim's mind as she's sitting there going and thinking about black girls code. So if black has been deemed by American society as somehow marginal mm. to the rest of the mm-hmm. world, how do you reclaim back that thing that you know is meaningful to you, you know is strong, right? And so she does this. And so this is the thing. What is it that matters to you? Mm. And how is this purpose that is resonant inside you manifest? And it could show up in a bunch of ways. So there's not like one answer to it. But what does that look like for you? And how do you start to act towards it? And instead of thinking, uh, you know, can I sell it? Can I grow up big? Can I change the world? Which is actually, by the way, the mythology that everyone's told us. You will find the big idea. Right. The right. actual <laughs> truth is, and, and actually of the 300 stories, all of them didn't start with that. What they started with was, this thing bugs me. Mm-hmm. Or I could see a better way to do this. And they weren't trying to own this thing way out in the horizon. Yeah. They were simply trying to create change around this. Would this make thing. my life better? Like it's kind of, it's been a thread. I mean, I've done a, almost 200 of these conversations. And that is one common thread is like. Can I add value here? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can I add value here? Which I think is different than can I make my life better, which seems so self-serving. And, and I, I say the shift because. I really do think it's about how your purpose gets plugged into the world. Sure. It's the place where it all starts to matter. Well, see, like I, I started my career in stand-up comedy and you I was did. a writer. Yes, uh, you can't tell today, but... Uh, <laughs> I can't, actually. But, of course you're making me laugh. It, uh, that is, that is an onlyness, mm-hmm. you know, it, and at some point you go, if it's funny to me, it's probably going to be funny to a few other people. If, if this app is a value to me, mm-hmm. it'd probably be a value to a few other people. Same thing with Black Girls Code. Oh, let me borrow that curriculum. It's, oh, it's got value. If, you know, if I can use it, she may not have had the foresight of the movement that it became, but... Yeah, she's trained 10,000 girls so far. Right, right? exactly. <laughs> you, you what never a huge know. and wonderful impact that she, by the way, couldn't have done if she stayed in the industry and plugged at it the way the industry's plugged at. Right. Right. So... I think it is spotting that thing that you see and believing there might be value there. So first, how do you claim something as valuable to you, even mm-hmm. if someone else doesn't see it? And then the bigger part, and that's really where the onlyness is the connected part, right? Is then how do you find those other people who might care about the same thing and make it yeah. grow, right? And I think the part, the difference between only and onlyness is if you're trying to do it just for yourself, you might end up becoming more and more lonely. It's mm-hmm. true. But if you find that thing that so meaningful to you, it will also likely be meaningful to someone else. Uh, you presented a yin to your own yang at one point. By romanticizing the power of the individual, it denies the power of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was you. You said that. Amen. Explain that statement. So I, I have grown up in Silicon Valley since I was four and a half years old. I have literally picked apricots in the orchards where Apple built its first building. And one of the things I have observed about the tech industry is they love to believe that they're a product of one. And they deny all the other things that were there before them that enabled them to build the things of the internet. So they deny that NASA and government involvement was absolutely there as a fundamental before they were able to come in, DARPA and other organizations were doing investments and they're like, but I built the internet and therefore I deserve, here's the follow on to that sentence, when you believe it's all about you, you get to also believe that you get to reap the rewards and keep them entirely yourself. But if the government actually helped build the infrastructure necessary for internet to be what it is, then you would want to pay taxes back to that community Mm. and believe Mm -hmm. that it is about making sure the community is vibrant. And so the mythology, and the media, by the way, helps this a lot, right, when they tell the story, is they tell the stories of singular individuals, and they tell it as if it's only mostly white men. When I actually, you know, every time I see a picture of Steve Jobs all by himself, 
I want to pull up every team picture exactly. that I've ever taken at Apple because it was always a team effort. And it's sad. It's a sad narrative that we sell, right? Right. That it's a heroic arc, which, by the way, is, is not actually the truth. So I, I find that just distorted. But it also sends the wrong signal for how you actually um, hold the thing. Yeah, no, I 100 percent agree. It's it's. I mean, the show, for instance, it's always individuals, right? And I, I remember the first time I kind of caught on to the concept you're talking about. I interviewed Sugar Ray Leonard. Mm-hmm. And of course, especially an athlete, and if, especially if you're an athlete in individual sport, you're like, that dude can run fast yeah. or she can swim. But you're, I was like, let's talk about the nutritionists, Coaches. people waking them up. Coaches. Uh, his wife, like all, there's a whole world of people around him that he relies on and they rely on him. It's an ecosystem. It's an exchange. And so, uh, I, I feel like that's a huge missing piece from all of these stories because everybody listens to this show or goes to the conference or whatever to see the keynote. And then they're like, me too. And you're like, no, not just you, you idiot. Like, it's it's going to be some other people involved in some Yeah, and I, and I find myself uh, doing idiots. this a lot, right? Uh, I, on Instagram, I was just sharing the story of the illustrator who did the, the work in loneliness. And I was, I, I, I was so excited to have a picture of the two of us together because I was like, well, and we were holding the book. So it was just a lovely little moment. But I was like, well, this is the illustrator. I was so lucky to find and she ended up showing because I wanted art and the publisher didn't want to pay for it. So I was like, one more thing I will take on and I will go find an artist and I will go help commission that person to come do this work. And even then I was taking a big risk. I didn't know this person, but I was like, and then and the work came out and it added it added a dimensionality that honestly, I couldn't have even pictured what the heck that was. I mean, I had like some some notion. That's all Mm -hmm. I had. And she brought it to life in her way and added her bit right to the world. And the book is not just there for my ideas, but it was the editor's shaping of those ideas. It was the illustrator adding the work. It was the design person adding his handwriting. It is it is always a body of work. And, and to the degree that any of us start to isolate ourselves, I think, first of all, we're lying to ourselves. Yeah. And we're not showing the next group of people how to do it. So that, that's the biggest harm we do is if Chris doesn't know that Chris needs a killer, excellent team behind him to do excellent work, right. then Chris doesn't know right what he actually needs to prioritize in his life to make his work grow. Um, you mentioned the word excellence, and that's something that we were talking about before we started re- recording is... Yes, you need a team, but you also need a team of excellent individuals to help you see through that, that vision. You know, I'm sure there's other graphic designers you talk to and you're like, eee, that, that wasn't quite what I, what I had in mind, nor should you be doing this ever again in your life. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and, and then there's a balance because if I'm starting a thing, I feel this, this need, this pull of need, let me get whatever I can versus like let me get the best mm-hmm. um whether you're you know you only you don't have enough money you don't have enough time it's like we cut we settle sometimes um and i don't i don't even know if i have a question there it's just a, it's a thought that came to me but is has that come up in your world and how yeah. have you navigated it so you know one of the things i actually had to spend a lot of time in with the with the body of work on onlyness was this pivot between so it's you, you claim this idea, then you have to find other people who can scale that idea. And then what is it that lets you go dunk that ball? You know, that idea gets across. Yeah, basketball uh, metaphor. There you go. Right. Um, and <laughs> and I, was, I was really, there was this one moment where I was like, I'm not sure I know what it is. And so I was literally doing research with these stories, listening really hard. Like, what is it that lets that pivot happen to go from you're starting to gather people around you to you're going to go get an action done and it turns out the key is trust having a group of people that you can lean on is what allows you to start to grow from isolated individuals who happen to be in the same space right and kind of maybe monetizing something or doing things separately to a group of people who have cohesion around that ball Mm. and trust turns out to be the key ingredient can they will they and will they do it for shared interest, not just their own? And so I took apart that in a series of stories in chapter six. And I have to tell you, one of the stories nearly killed me. I took something like 16 interviews to get that story. And uh, and, and I was like, I'm sure it's here. I just apparently am not seeing it. You know, and I, I just right. kept going and going. And the one person who put it together, the quote is, um, the reason that um, we bring out more of ourselves, something that we didn't even believe was possible, 
the language was the tug of mutual obligation. Mm. That, and you can feel it, right? Yeah. You hear that phrase, the tug of mutual obligation. It's when I know you need me, that you, I've said you can count on me, and we're going to do this together. That tug of mutual ob- obligation is the glue yeah. that allows us to say, okay, I look you in the eye, and we're going to go do this thing, right? And, uh, and that's the piece that we're all looking for. And we don't necessarily know that it is what we're looking and for. And also, we don't know to ask that up front. You know, I, had a, I, I don't have a mentor per se, but I, I refer to, you know, a lot of things in life as mentor moments, mm-hmm. right? Or you have an exchange. I don't even remember who said this, but it was ask that up front. Like, if you meet somebody, it's like, can I trust you? Like, trust or, as a matter of fact, phrase it like trust is, a, um, is very important to me. And here's why. Uh, but a lot of people, I, th- I think most of us feel like that's a weird way to enter well, into trust a relationship. Well, for what, right? <laughs> right? Trust for what? Yeah. I mean, can I trust you to show up on time? Can I trust you to take care of my right. kid? Can I trust you to watch after my business interests? Those are very different things, right? right? And can I, should I, will I? Those are very different things. And so just taking apart that trust equation is really important. So do I want to? Sure. Do I know how? Maybe not, right? So uh, so learning how to take apart, even to how to assess it, that's one of the things I spent some time on when that in that book there, is can that person, will that person, mm-hmm. right? And separating it. And then getting people to organize, not around, um, like, it's, it's you know, I like Chris, right? So, or I like Nilifer. And so we can say, I trust that person. But to say, do we have the same shared goals? Because if we have the same shared goals, that's the ball. That's right. the thing that we're trying to move down the field. And it could be the same shared idea, right? Um, and as long as we can be clear on what that is, then of course we're going to go pull on it together and go move it downfield. Uh, what did did little... I just mix sports metaphors I did? No, no. Well, I was going to say, I was going to full circle it a little bit. I was going to ask what did little Nilifer want to do? I know you started off career-wise as an admin assistant, which is that's the whole story in and of itself. But... When you were 10, you know, what was on your mind as far as the future goes for you? Was And at any point, whether at 10 or as an admin, was this the Nilifer you had envisioned at, at any point in time? I was raised in an incredibly traditional Islamic household. My job uh, from the time I was born, basically, was to marry well so that my mother would be provided for. Uh, so I was going to get an arranged marriage. And in fact, at 18... Uh, uh, had signed up to it. Uh, and all I had asked for was in the process of arranging the marriage, could they please also ask that guy if I could get an education? So secretly, I had applied to college and secretly I had gotten a deferment. And I figured, okay, so then I'll get an arranged marriage because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's, you know, right. my job. And then I will also be able to get an education because that was the thing I loved. I loved reading, I loved learning, I always wanted an education. You do have a geeky little brain, <laughs> as, you, as you stated earlier. And uh, and so here I was at 18, I came home and one day the aunties are all full in the house and saying, okay, it's all arranged. And I went to my uncle who had been helping with this process and said, uh, so you told him about me wanting an education? And my uncle was like, nope, not allowed to mention that. Your mother would not let me bring it up. So it never happened. And so that evening after all the aunties leave, I take this very, I'm so surprised it was so out of character. I take this box, like a grocery box that had just, you know, like had mangoes in it five minutes before. And I put in five books and like one outfit and no toothbrush or anything because I wasn't thinking I was leaving, right? I thought I was doing a theatrical little moment with my mother. And I said to her, I am the product. So remember, I was raised in a Western high school. and I am the product. You cannot do this deal without me. So uh, go and just ask this guy to get an education. All I wanted her to say, she'll ask him, right? right? I wasn't even saying like for him to agree, just ask him. And she goes, no, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna risk, because she was negotiating for a house for herself. So I'm not gonna risk the house for this question. It's kind of like a stupid question you can ask him two years from now. And so I walk out of the house, not even knowing where to go, because I have no place to go. I don't have a car or anything, right? right. And uh, so I walk down to the local donut shop and I'm thinking an apple fritter later, I will somehow like buy enough time, she will realize she has to change her mind and we'll be done. Yeah, we didn't talk for like 15 years. <laughs> oh my gosh. Because uh, she was unwilling to relent on the question and I was unwilling to relent on my education. And so uh, I ended up putting myself through uh, many years of community college, <laughs> equally many years of evening school program to get a bachelor degree. 
equally as many years to go get a master's degree, all in the evening programs, all because Jesuits believe in evening programs, University of San Francisco, Santa Clara University, and uh, 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 because I believe that mattered. And I wanted that for my own life, and in choosing that for myself, I guess I had to also uh, let go of what the world wanted, you know, what my family wanted for me, which was really constraining to a certain ism right they were only looking at me through the lens of this is your job through the ism of girl and tradition and so on instead of recognizing and seeing the person that i was well you as uh, poetically you've been living loneliness since that day you left right it's like oh i see how this should be and i'm i won't settle for anything less than the way I, the, what that vision is. I think it really bothered me earlier on in my life how much I was only seen through a, essentially a caricature, right? A stereotype of what I was supposed to be. Not They weren't seeing me, right. the person. They were seeing me through the lens of some grouping. And so when I was then as an admin at Apple, uh, people would... I remember one time I was asked to a meeting and, and the meeting was announced like, oh, we need all these fresh ideas. We're going to go to this meeting to brainstorm. And for some reason I thought, because I was invited to the meeting, that also meant I was supposed to bring ideas. And I show up with like a list of ideas. I've thought about it ahead of time. And it becomes really apparent within like a couple minutes. No, 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 no. They only really meant the people with the MBAs in the room were allowed to have the ideas. And I was like, oh, 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 you know, and then and then later on in a, a different situation, like noticing, oh, they're only noticing the men in the room. They're like, oh, hmm, right? And so it's it's over years, I just kept noticing how many people get screened out, not because they don't have good ideas, right. but simply by the packaging that idea comes in, they get screened out. And so I think it, that's why I was noticing this possibility of if we're moving to an ideas economy, could all ideas count? Sure. Of course, it's my onlyness that I would be noticing. All ideas matter. Baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple more questions before we, we wind down a, a little bit. Um, uh, what was I going to ask you? So uh, the show is called Innovation Crush, mm-hmm. right? Um, actually, no, before we go there, mm. before we go there, uh, I think about this metaphor of like how Anthony Bourdain is presents all this great storytelling around culinary and cuisine, and he you know he understands it because he's been in the kitchen, right? Uh, do you ever go back to the kitchen, right? Are you or as far as like taking the things that you talk about in your books, plural? Um, and on stages and you've been all mm. over the world and um, but do you ever take that back and like actually you know get it get your hands dirty or are you kind of like helping other people get their hands dirty in better ways um, I, I have a lot of passion around a couple of ideas that I hope I, I get to spend more time actively pursuing but I, I do help a lot of entrepreneurs uh, and so uh, my big you know, if, if I can't ship a product, can I help you ship a product? And uh, can I get you through the juggernaut of issues? So I do a lot of advising, but really deep, like deep committed. Like I'm committed to that person for at least a year to help them through some juggernaut they're going through. Can and they that, trust you? And they and they can call on me, right? So I'm their eight. <laughs> it's their like. Remember that Lifeline show where you could call someone? Yeah. I, I am that oh, life. Wow. Yes. I, I, I am that Lifeline for a couple CEOs where when they're stuck. Or before, hopefully before they're stuck, they yeah. might call me and just talk through the issues so that we can really help them, um, you know, kind of manage their rate of change. I'm just trying to get yeah. them to, I'm trying to be that accelerant for them. Uh, I have to ask this one. Because yeah. <laughs> um, you talk about a lot, you, you talk a lot in your writing about economies and politics and societal norms and so on and so forth. But And, you know, a lot of your career has been spent inside the Microsofts of the world and the Apples. Um and then a CEO calls you, right? And I think when you look at a at a problem that someone's facing, it can be exhausting to look at all those different cultural and business touch points from politics to just cultural sentiment around, cultural mood, I guess, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that. Um, how do you manage all the inputs, right? And actually create a consensus there? Mm. So, I, I, so regardless of domain, innovation has the same through line, regardless of domain. So I've been in education, I've been in politics, I've been in corporate life. And the one thing is innovation is always about taking that wild idea and moving it to reality. And I am really good at figuring out, okay, what are the milestones? Where are you? Is the idea firm? Do you have a team behind it? Where, where are you in the capital structure of you know, resources behind it, et cetera? And there's, a, there's, there's lock steps that you have to manage that are consistent across domains. And so the key is actually looking at the pattern of idea to reality. 
and then and then decoding where you in that chain. Very good. Um, good answer. <laughs> like a game show. Good answer. Good answer. Um, uh, so yes, the show's called Innovation Crush. You've seen a lot of things. You've talked to a lot of people. Um, you've done a lot of things. What do you currently have a crush on? It might be. It could be anything. A car, uh, a movement, a social mm. movement, a, a meal you had. I don't know. I'm really big into solutions. So here's the thing. We have a lot of problems going on um, across different domains. In the political sphere, uh, do we have enough people championing um, a set of ideas that will allow you to organize better? The white supremacists seem to have done an unbelievably good job about organizing They're well. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that email list is it, it's a high open rate. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, <laughs> but, but the uh, alternative side, the opposing side, has not formulated enough solutions, right? And uh, in the fields of like, tech, they struggle with things like sexism, uh, um, who's actually driving the solutions. Uh, we in the work labor force have an issue about tech, uh, AI will come and take most jobs. And there's, there's no question about that. And yet we continue to have books that write about the problems. And I'm like, well, who's driving the solutions? So I'm, I have a crush, and that's obviously where I just spent the, the last four years of my life, studying 300 people who are actually really denting the world in ways that are significant, that looked inconsequential when they started and became significant by their actions. And so I'm big into, let's go focus on people doing things and let's go help make that the focus because I think we can all look at the darkness or we can look towards the light. So that's what I've got a crush on right now. Uh, I 100% agree with that sentiment. It's, uh, I, I think we, it, the, what the internet has also given us is just a soapbox to say a bunch of stuff and not necessarily do the, the you know do better do anything about as the things Lovie that we're talking say, about. As Lovia Jaya would say and want us to say for her, right. is do better and and so let's look and reward and measure doing better. So enough talk. Every time tech says they're so naive about the problems that they've allowed white supremacists to hijack the social media world and actually target people, and then they act like, gosh, really us. And I'm like, no, really you. So stop acting yeah, like really you're you. naive about it. And I, I get that you're making money off it. Cut it out and do better and tell me exactly what you're going to do to do better. And that's what I want to measure you to. Do better. Do better. Um, complete this phrase for me. Mm. Innovation to me is? Turning wild ideas into new realities. Boom. Um, I love it. Where can, be, where can people find you? Where can, uh, where, how do you even spell Nilifer? Uh, I mean, I know how to spell it. I'm just like, telling, the, telling the people. Nilifer, N-I-L-O-F-E-R, and the last name is Merchant, yes. M-E-R-C-H-A-N-T. So my domain is nilifermerchant.com. I write there, and from there, you can find me all over the internet. All right. Uh, I'm glad you found the time to, to hang out. Um, thank you, everybody. This has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time.